Welcome back to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of books. I'm your host, Marie Stone. My guest today is Lisa Gordick. Lisa has been hailed by NPR as one of the most perceptive, compassionate writers of fiction in America, immensely talented and brave. She's the author of four previous novels, most recently The Peacock Feast and Louisa Meets Bear, both published by FSG, as well as Picador. She joined me on the show for both of those books when they came out in 2015 and 2019. You can find those interviews in our archives. Her latest, Anna Turns, was published by Keylight Books last month. Lisa's stories and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Paris Review, Prairie Schooner, the Wall Street Journal, and Real Simple, and have received many honors, including Distinguished Story by the Best American Short Stories. Today we chat about Anna Turns. Anna is turning 60, which is cause for reflection on her sexless marriage, her seven-year affair, her worries about her only child who's doing some reflection of their own, her arguably cruel and emotionally unavailable mother, and much, much more. In addition to unpacking how Lisa rendered these characters, we will chat about how to manage time and backstory in a novel, dealing with contemporary issues in sensitive ways, writing roving points of view, and much more. Lisa Gornick, welcome back. Thank you, Marie, for having me. I'm really delighted to chat with you again. Yeah, me too. Hey, we, I don't think, ever had the luxury of spending an hour together before. So I don't think we ever chatted about how your work as a psychoanalyst led to writing. But I can't imagine better training for a writer than psychology and psychoanalysis. But kind of tell me about that origin of you as a writer, that origin story, and your connecting psychoanalysis to your fiction. Well, I, I think it actually went the other way around. I actually became an analyst because I was an aspiring writer. When I entered college, I thought I wanted to be a poet. And about three or four months into my undergraduate years, I decided um, I really needed to be out in the world a bit. And I volunteered to work at a nearby state prison. And when I was there, the one of the people who was a counselor, there was an ex-con himself, invited me to sit in on a group he met, he ran with other prisoners. And I was so taken with this group and the way that they were telling stories that it occurred to me that I really wanted to do both. I wanted to be a psychotherapist and a writer. So I, I really pursued the two in parallel. And then I reached a point in my mid-40s when it really seemed that um, I couldn't do everything anymore, run a family and and be a practicing analyst at that point and be a writer. My writing had gotten more complicated. It just needed more of my attention. But there was another piece to it too, which was that I had begun to, with the internet now part of every writer's life, the, the possibility of having a separation between the two disciplines was really uh, no longer viable. And so my patients were reading my work and it didn't feel like it was good for their work. And it wasn't good for my own work to sort of have in the back of my mind, how would people respond to this above and beyond my family? So I, as I've said before, what started off as a very happy marriage between the two professions, which seemed really compatible, required a divorce. And I went with the writing. <laughs> 
That's really interesting. And I imagine that whatever you learned in school must have incredibly enriched all of your characters. How could it not, right? Oh, absolutely. And and I'm being a little glib to say I went with the writing. I I, I remain on the faculty at the Columbia Psychoanalytic and I, and I am involved with analytic colleagues, but I'm no longer seeing patients. It's absolutely foundational for me, the work that I was trained to do. Um, I have a belief in the unconscious and that impacts both the way that I work and the way that I develop characters. I certainly think that the past influences the the present. I mean, I know you said you wanted to talk about time, but as you may recall from my books, there are always multiple generations that are literally in the book and are in my in my, I was going to say patience, in my characters' heads. <laughs> and and I feel about my characters the way that I did when I was practicing that. It really takes a long time and a lot of layering and overturning of many stories to begin to get at what feels like a more foundational truth about my characters. Yeah, I do remember us talking about that the last time that you said, you know, every character requires at least at least three generations. And I think in the Peacock Feast, there were four generations of understanding of where people emerge from. And I see that all over this book as well. It's a lot of excavation of uh, trauma, right? Yes. I mean, although the book takes place in a day, we learn about um, Anna's grandparents' marriages on both sides, maternal and paternal. We learn about her parents' marriages, her brothers, her her lovers, her her lover's wife's grandparents. Right. So there, there's a, there's a vast um, cast of characters. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, this is probably a good time to introduce her. And it was striking me that this novel might be a little bit easier to introduce than the Peacock Feast was. I remember that was that was kind of a bear to <laughs> to talk about because there was, was a lot going on. But yeah, take us into Anna's life a little bit, and that'll that'll set the stage for the discussion. Okay, so the book opens at midnight on Anna's 60th birthday when she receives an email from her 88-year-old mother. And in the email, there's an accounting of what it costs to raise Anna. And she's crushed, but mostly she's appalled that at 60, she still lets herself be crushed. And not long after that, so she's just a half an hour into her 60th birthday, a text arrives from her lover asserting his right to see her on her birthday. And she has a deep sigh because she's already stretched very thin this day. She's going to have yoga with what turns out to be her quarreling nieces, lunch with her transitioning adult child, a meeting with a writing client who, who's in a crisis. And then there's a party the day like Mrs. Dalloway, um, Hmm. culminates in in a party and is being thrown by her brother who recently hijacked their father's will and her doctor husband, who, as Marie mentioned in the introduction, is the kindest man that Anna has ever known, but he's had a back injury and they've not had sex in nearly a decade. And he's since become addicted to pot. So there's really a lot going on in her life and during the course of the narrative, we follow Anna as she wends her way through the city, seeing all of these people, but also as her mind goes back to many key events and key people in her life. Set in the wonderfully rich New York. 
I always love novels set in New York because there's so much going on in the background of the city as well as, you know, in these characters' lives. Yes, I think New York is sort of a character in the book. It is, yeah. I feel like New York is a character in a lot of your books. The last one I feel like too, right? That's true. The Peacock Feast, that was the case as well. And Louisa Meets Bear, probably all of them. Yeah, Yeah, it's hard to escape where (laughs) our own backgrounds of where we are. Right. So tell me about the origin of this for you and, you know, whether it began with with Anna or whether I keep saying Anna and Anna. Do you like to call her Anna or Anna? Because I, I love the I spelling. Think, I think of her as Anna and her father, as we learn in the first page of the book, wanted to spell it A-N-N-A and it would have been Anna. Right. But actually that was that was what her how her mother wanted to spell it which was a reference to uh, her swedish forebears and her father refuses that extra n because he thinks it looks ungainly too much like <laughs> he's a very visual person unlike her mother so it's anna okay i didn't know if we were in like russian on a karyanita territory or you know so this right right no no we're we're in american territory and so I started with a couple of ideas and it took me a long time to see how they connected. One was to tell the story of a woman's 60th birthday, which is in fact the frame for this. The second was this story I had learned about the Balayan Buddhas, which had really fascinated and kind of obsessed me. And I wanted to wind that or thread that in. And the third was the idea of a woman who learns that a childhood friend who she's lost touch with, they haven't become estranged, but they've lost touch, has died of an opiate addiction. So I had those three ideas and it took me a long time to sort of see how they connected to each other and then to figure out the the frame, the structure of how I was going to tell this story. The original version of the book, uh, uh, the earliest drafts were from only... Anna's point of view. And so it was a, quite a shorter book. And when I finished that, I was still interested in the characters and I was writing stories for the points of view of many of the other characters, some of them peripheral, some of them major. And it occurred to me after at a certain point that why were these separate books? I was imagining that as a separate book of link short stories, sort of like Louisa Beats Bear. And talking this over with a very good writer friend, I realized I wanted to put them together. I already had the title. It took me until I think the book was in physical form to understand that this new structure in which we alternate from Anna's point of view, and then we move into these other points of view interspersed throughout, was in a sense, the theme of the book and what the title refers to. We're talking about Anna, the reader turns away from Anna's point of view in order to see the world and the story in a different way. And it was really only yesterday I did an interview with Alice McDermott for Book Passage, which is sort of in your neck of the woods. And when I was preparing for that, that I realized that the reader learns on page 40, long before Anna, that her husband is long known. She's been having an affair. I've forgotten that myself. (laughs) So there's a, a, a way that... The reader turns away from Anna's consciousness into other consciousnesses. Sometimes he's ahead of Anna in what they know. 
Yeah, the the title is so metaphoric because not only is she obviously turning 60 and the reader is turning to all these other points of view. I mean, she's really making a fundamental life switch on this day in relation to her son, in relation to her mother, in relation to her husband and her lover. You know, I mean, that day, and I, I think that's tricky for a novelist to understand that a character has to make a switch from beginning to end, and that switch has to happen in this case, in 24 hours, you know, so to accomplish that and make it feel authentic, I think is a challenge. And I was wondering if you could speak to that, if that was difficult, that time compression. I mean, some of the shifts are dramatic. Some of them aren't. Some of them are just, you know, she's she's seeing things in a slightly new way and we don't know what's going to happen the next week or the next month. But tell me about making so many of those fundamental shifts in mindset in 24 hours and if that was hard right. on you well i definitely did not want it to feel like all of these fireworks were going off on this one day uh, but rather because it's it's a decade birthday and it's a significant birthday she is taking stock and there are very subtle changes that happen there's there's only really one uh, literal dramatic change, which I, I so it's not to have a spoiler, I won't say what it is that that happens in the book. But she's ready to turn away from things that are not serving her, to turn back to certain things that she's let go of, and she's turning towards the last third of her life and thinking about this. So, sort of one change, in a sense, stimulates others and. And in essence, what what happens is that she begins to have a glimmer that she can understand uh, the world through others' eyes. And I'll just give one example. Um, there's a conversation that goes on throughout Ada's life since she's in her 20s with her very close friend, Fiona. And Fiona has this reprieve in which she's always saying to Anna, your brother is not really your brother because her brother is done some kind of unkind things to Anna. And when they're at this birthday dinner, she she looks at him and, and she thinks, that's really not true. He really is my brother. The fact that he doesn't match my wishes for what a brother could be um, doesn't make him any less my brother. We really grew up together with our grandparents in this in this row house in Baltimore with one bathroom for five of us. And we really shared all of these experiences and the fact that he disappointed her at various times in his life doesn't make him any lesser brother. I think because the reader enters into one of the chapters, which are told from her brother, which is told from her brother's point of view, hopefully the reader follows me as the author into better understanding him and the choices that he made and that in his mind he was not being cruel he was just doing what he needed to do to to catapult himself out of this very unhappy childhood that he'd had so those are the kinds of shifts it's not fireworks she doesn't win the lottery or burn down a house or, or <laughs> right. do anything dramatic right I'm glad you said that about her brother, because there are a few characters in here. Her brother is one. Her mother certainly is another who are unsympathetic at certain times in the book. And by shifting into their point of view, you certainly get a more rounded picture of why they are who they are. And I was wondering if that was one of the reasons motivating your decision 
to go into different points of view. So you yourself could give these characters a little bit more grace for their sometimes unconscionable actions. Well, I, I like that word grace. I, I don't think that, what, you know, I talked about the unconscious. It wasn't a conscious decision. I I wasn't done with these characters and I was curious about them. But once I entered into writing through their points of view, so the other chapters, there's one from her husband's point of view, one from her father's point of view, her brother, her lover, and her lover's wife, that there's something that happens. It's perhaps like taking care of a child that, uh, that when I spent time with them and I began to inhabit the world through their eyes, I understood them much more deeply why they did the things that they did. And I felt more compassion for them. Now, the reader knows a lot of stories about these characters that Anna doesn't consciously know. And in fact, there's a, a story that her father tells Anna's husband who is a doctor and finds himself um, unwittingly in a role of having to take care of her father for an hour. And so her father tells him this story. He can't reveal it to Anna because he's really been told it in his role as a doctor. And so I was interested in, in the way that I, as the writer, the reader, other people, and maybe unconsciously Anna could begin to soften a bit. You asked about the connection with by practicing. And one of the things I used to notice with patients, and I've certainly noticed it about people I know and myself, is that sometimes we cling to negative views of other people because we want to prosecute them. So yes, we yes. don't really allow in things that are inconsistent with that. And, and uh, so I remember at times hearing stories about patients who were actually upset when the parent who'd really failed them in their childhood, then in later years did something that was, that was wonderful. They didn't want that to happen because that <laughs> undermined their narrative. And, um, and I think that's part of what happens in this book is that, that we undermine the narrative that Anna has about her, her mother, her brother, her father. I probably owe you some money now just for that piece of <laughs> psychological insight. Yeah, that's so true. Tell me a little bit about writing infidelity for American audiences, because I feel like Americans, they're a little bit puritanical or unaccepting of topics of infidelity. I mean, I, I've just talked to a lot of readers who are like, I see that and I just, you know, I have no sympathy and I turn this off. But it's such a reality and a commonhood. And so I was wondering if you had trepidation about that how sympathetic you had to feel like you were making Anna's situation anything you can say about that topic because I know a lot of writers who shy away from it for that reason for fear of turning readers off oh well that's that's really interesting no one Maria has asked me that question before I absolutely share American point of view of feeling very judgmental about it and the book opens, and I probably began with this point of view, that Anna's father is a serial philanderer. And he, in fact, sleeps with another woman cheating on his mistress on the day Anna is born. So we start off with a very negative view of, of him. And her mother, who can be quite brutal, and as Anna's friend Fiona calls her, more battleship than mom, um, has the strength to tell him when she catches him 
when Anna is three, that if this ever happens again, she will immediately end the marriage. And she does. And she pays a very dear cost for that. She moves her two young children in with her parents and they live, as I said, five of them in this row house in Baltimore with one bathroom. And she gives up the life of having been the uh, the spouse of a very successful uh, rising architect architect. So we start with that, but then when we go into Rolf, that's Anna's father's point of view, we understand it a bit in a, with a bit more complexity, which is that it was really a terrible mismatch, his marriage with Jean, with Anna's mother. And so although that doesn't justify what he does, we understand that it's connected to his artistic soul and his his need for self-expression and his need to try to find a better partner. And he's, he's really a louse about it, but he doesn't, that isn't his intention. Anna never intends to have an affair, but her husband has this back injury um, and he's, they have a wonderful marriage and he has this back injury and he's treated with opiates as people often are for back injuries. And because he's a, a doctor, he, has way too much access to to opiates and he gets he starts to get in trouble and he has the wherewithal to detox himself but he substitutes marijuana and with that their sex life really goes out the window so two years into this she meets she's at a museum she's looking at a bodhisattva in the Rubin museum and this very intriguing man who she's met in another context on one other occasion approaches her and he senses something about her that she doesn't even know about herself and he has a complicated arrangement with his his wife Alice who's a pediatrician they'd met in Hawaii in Kauai Lance is a surfer and he's on the beach surfing and she's reading a pediatric um, medical journal and they strike up a conversation he and Alice and she is essentially a virgin in her late 30s and she asks him will he have sex with her this is Alice Lance's wife and he feels like it would be insulting to say no and so he does <laughs> and she gets pregnant and she's a, a very ethical person and she writes him and says I'm pregnant. I'm really delighted. I never thought I would have a child at my age and you don't, you don't owe me anything. I just wanted to let you know. And Lance knows that she's a very fine person and that she will be a fantastic mother and partner. And they have a kind of unspoken arrangement. As he says, he loves Alice, but he never fell in love with her. And their marriage is based on being a family together and he thinks about sex in a completely different way than she does. He sees it as a kind of creative space for him. And it, he considers it to be one of the activities like surfing, a certain kind of travel that he does, skiing. He just doesn't share with her. So he tries to convince Anna that this can be the same for her with Henry, that doesn't have to threaten their marriage, that their sexual affair can exist encapsulated outside of this, that never really works for Anna, but and she constantly feels conflicted about it. And so anyway, I'll just add one other thing. Her friend Fiona, in a way, shares Lance, her lover's point of view. She has the um, idea that honesty is a, a 
admirable virtue, but less important than kindness or respect. And that what matters is the authentic connection between people, not whether or not, as she puts it, genitals touch. So she considers that what matters for Anna with her husband, Henry, is the quality of the kindness, respect, and authenticity that they have between them. Anna can never square this with the kind of deception that has to go on in order for her to carry out her affair. She doesn't know, though, that Henry actually does know about the affair. And in writing about this and in writing about that issue from all these complex points of view, did it change your mind about anything in the end? Or did you kind of buy into all of your characters' different takes on it for all their various reasons? Well, I think I don't want to have any spoilers, but, you know, my own consciousness is very close to Anna's. And so I do, in the end, see it the way that she does personally. But I absolutely came to understand the legitimacy of these other of these other points of view. And, and in the end, Anna comes to believe that she is uh, very culpable for the kind of anesthesia that's happened with her husband, Henry. And he comes to see that he's very responsible for what's, what's happened to between them. I only ask because I talk to a lot of writers who say they sort of set out to answer a question that they themselves have and the writing process. It's not therapy, but the writing process sort of, you know, is is an attempt to answer things that they're curious about or they wonder about. And I was just curious if through the writing of this, there was a question you were writing towards for yourself. And maybe it wasn't that one. Maybe it was a different one or maybe that doesn't apply at all. Well, you know, I, I heard you ask this question to um, to Jane Ann Phillips in your recent interview with her. I don't set out with a conscious question, but with each of my books, by the time I get to the end, I feel like I've written myself into a new phase of life. And I would say that this book is more about forgiveness than it is about infidelity, that it's about how Anna comes to see that she's incredibly burdened by all of these resentments. And that if she wants to be able to go in a more liberated and joyful way into the next phase of life, she needs to let go of some of this. And so that was not a question that I started out with, but it's absolutely a, a kind of a place that I landed with Anna by the end of the, of the writing process. The book deals with so many contemporary issues of our time, as we touched on the opioid epidemic, transgender issues. And I was wondering how you tackle situations with both sensitivity. The transgender issue is handled so sensitively. And at times, you can almost wonder if it's like too sensitive, right? (laughs) You're being very careful correctly, but... That's such a hard issue for parents. 
Sounds like you're wondering. Reservations. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. If you had reservations about how to approach those topics, right. approach them both sensitively and authentically, I guess is really my, my question. Okay. You know, I did have writer friends who said to me, don't go there. <laughs> and I absolutely did not want to try to write from the point of view of a trans woman, but I wanted to depict something that I had heard about from parents of adult trans children, which is that as Tori Peters puts it in her wonderful book, Detransition Baby, and I quote her in the acknowledgments that even the most loving um, sensitive, accepting parents still make tons of mistakes. And that's like the best, the, the mistakes of loving parents to uh, utter cruelty that can happen. And I read and listened to many memoirs by trans women about the experiences they had with their families of origin, which, as I said, can range from parents who really want to do the best by their adult children, but still can't help making mistakes to, to real cruelty. Anna and Henry are um, progressive. They live on the Upper West Side of New York. They absolutely ideologically and emotionally want to accept their son, Simon, who is transitioning to become their daughter, Simona. And but Anna can't flip a switch and son and and do this immediately. So she and Simon actually talk a good deal about like, what should she do with her memories of Simon as a little boy? And uh, they say to her, I don't expect you to cleanse your memories. I think of myself as a child, as a little boy. And, but she's aware that as time progresses, that pretty soon she will have a daughter. So I also came to see that this was not an issue that's just about the parents of trans children, that it's really about applicable to the parents of all adult children, that we all have to come to accept the boundary that our adult children's lives and bodies belong to them. I and mean, what Anna is struggling with at first is that she has so much anxiety about what might happen to to Simon slash Simona. You know, will, will they be safe? Will something Will there be an accident and an ambulance worker might be transphobic and not help Sabona? So uh, Anna realizes that she's really burdening her child by that kind of anxiety. She has to try to contain it herself. And it's in such contrast to her mother, who also doesn't, at age 60, is still not really giving Anna much autonomy over herself. That's <laughs> so, right. That's yeah. right. There's a couple of tiny subplots in here, one on, and I know this was published well before October 7th of this year and the Hamas attack, but there are references to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which of course is as old as time, but there is that. And then there's also a tiny little subplot on execution. There's, there's sort of this chemical execution going on in the background of the book. And tell me a little bit about these smaller element subplots, your choice to include them, and whether there was ever a um, risk of them sort of 
overtaking, you know, how you kept them contained and and um, their role in the book and whether there was ever a risk of them overtaking the narrative? Oh, well, that's a really good question. You know, the book is porous in that the external world enters into it. And I think that's the case for all of us. I mean, we're all feeling it very profoundly the past uh, two months um, since October 7th. But even in 2017, I think everyone was still in shock because of the election. And when I picked the day that this was that was going to be Anna's 60th birthday, I I wanted to see what else was going on in the world that day. And, and that's when I learned the story about this uh, this chemical execution. So maybe I'll address that for a moment here. I read this story, which I had not heard at the time. It just wasn't on my radar at the time that there was a young woman, uh, Kayla Greenwood. She was 22 at the time. And she became aware that one of the nine persons who were slated for a chemical execution in Arkansas for the absolutely absurd reason that the that one of the medications that was used in chemical executions at the time was expiring, so that they were rushing to execute nine people before this drug expired, was the man who had killed her father when she was five. And Kenneth Williams, um, this African-American man who was imprisoned for having murdered, if I'm recalling correctly, two people, and he escaped from prison. And during that escape, he murdered another person and he accidentally crashed his vehicle and killed Kayla Greenwood's father. So jumping forward, she becomes aware that he's going to be executed and that he has a daughter who's almost exactly her age, who hasn't seen her father in many, many years. And Kayla and her mother and her then stepfather decide that they're going to fund a an airline ticket so the daughter of the man who's going to be executed can see him. And Kayla has this feeling that she's lost her father and she knows what that's like and that she doesn't want to imagine that Kenneth Williams' daughter will not be able to see him before he dies. And she then takes the really extraordinary step of writing a letter to Asa Hutchinson, who was then the governor of Arkansas, pleading that he be pardoned and he, he was not, and he was indeed executed. So I was just very taken with this story that this 22-year-old girl, as another character in the book says, you know, has a heart as big as the Grand Canyon, that she's she's able to see the world, which is what this book is in many ways about, through the eyes of the daughter, through the eyes of the man who has killed her own father, and to imagine a kind of restitution that will be uh, healing for her. So that's one piece of it. You asked about the Palestine question. In the novel, there's a, a kind of intersection between Anna's lover's wife, Alice, who I talked about as the pediatrician, and Anna's paternal grandfather. Her paternal grandfather grows up at a hotel near Salisbury in Switzerland, where his father is the general manager during World War II of this hotel. And as the general manager, even though Switzerland was technically neutral, he has to make a lot of compromises, including he hosts Nazi generals and their mistresses when they come 
to the hotel and, and her grandfather is very burdened by this. And this is one of the secrets that Anna's father tells Anna's husband. And it turns out that there's some intersection between Alice's grandfather, who may have been a person that Anna's grandfather refused to hire during that time because he was a Jew, Alice's I know this is getting complicated, but Alice's, Alice's grandfather. But Alice has has grown up in a Jewish community in Connecticut, and she's she's a Zionist, and she goes to Israel and comes back and very ardent Zionist. Then during her pediatric residency, she has a placement in Gaza, and it opens her eyes to the suffering of these Palestinian children, and it just changes her view about things and. And she's, you know, accused of being a self-hating Jew. And she really suffers a lot because she writes an op-ed about um, the condition of these children. So indeed, that was all before October 7th. But um, I think it's quite relevant to today. Yeah, and it's it's just is a window into people who haven't picked the book up yet, how much you can layer into people's backstories and the big container that a novel is, that it can hold all of this. We'll be back with more from Lisa Gornick talking about Anna Turns in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. A quick reminder to check out our Patreon page if you enjoy these behind-the-scenes discussions of how these books get made or some of the advice that our authors provide have helped you in your own writing process. This is a way to support the show. You can check us out at patreon.com slash writers on writing. You also have an opportunity to buy Lisa's book and other books from past guests up on our affiliate page at bookshop.org. We have uh, writing books on craft, some of the books that we recommend, Barbara's book, all of those books are up there. If there's a book up there that you want and you don't see, drop us a line and we can add it up there. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Lisa Gornick talking about Anna Turns. Which brings me to the question of managing time and backstory in the book. So we we know that the present day story takes place over pretty much 24 hours of her birthday. But you have to get all of these stories in on all of these characters and their backstories and their lineage. So tell me a little bit about managing backstory and knowing when you've dipped out of present day narrative too long, when and how to place it. I kind of think of structure as a clothesline and the backstory is kind of dipping down into the closes hanging on the line and then you have to get back up to the line you know what I mean oh um, that's I like that image that's very nice <laughs> yeah and I'm wondering kind of how you manage it if you have kind of a timeline you know on your wall we talked about this a little bit in the peacock feast but yeah managing time and backstory in a novel anything you can say about that I think is really helpful okay well for me the structure of this book the the way that I envisioned it was like a a, a series of train stops that I knew literally where Anna was going to go from midnight to midnight, uh, the places that she was going to visit. And I actually walked and traveled that journey myself to make sure I, I sort of felt exactly what was going to happen. But I didn't really know what was going to happen in all of those places. So that's sort of A. 
B, and this may be idiosyncratic to the way that I work, I, before I begin what I call the actual writing, before I even settled on that structure, I do a huge amount of thinking and note-taking and scene writing about my characters. So I know a lot about them. What ends up in the novel is the often just the tip of the iceberg. But I think the way that the book is structured, I was very inspired by Mrs. Dalloway and something that Virginia Woolf does, which is that it really doesn't feel like there's front story and backstory. It's associative. So that as I went through the narrative of this day, there would be moments when Anna was thinking about people in her past or reflecting on things going on in her current life that related to prior events. And the narrative would drift into her thoughts and then sometimes into scenes from from the past. So I really did not want it to feel like we were in a front story and then we're moving away and we're into the back story. And now we're back to the front story for it to feel more as though we are following Anna's consciousness. And I think that's true for all of us that you know, we're, we're in the present day, but we're walking around, we're remembering other things and we're thinking about things in the past. And then we come back into the present. And sometimes in some of those depictions of things that happened in the past, they're happening at the same time as a present event. And they're sort of interwoven into it. So I don't know if that answers the question. I'm so glad you said that because I was talking to Nathan Hill, his book, Wellness. We were talking about chronological time versus chronos time. And chronos really operates the same as you're describing this of things that feel like they're happening now because that's how memory works. And you can throw yourself back into an event very quickly by a memory trigger and how he tried to tell that entire novel wellness chronologically instead of chronologically. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But I think that's such an interesting concept because you're right. That is how we operate and we can be, you know, flipped around in time so quickly. Yeah. But it strikes me as hard to do that as the writer. It sounds like you keep a lot of notes. Do you use like Scrivener or something like that to keep all of no. these notes straight? How do you do it? I, I don't. I do... Oh, well, in my novel in progress, which I feel like I haven't really started the actual writing, I probably have 200 pages of notes and I will ultimately review them and read them and make decisions because sometimes they're contradicting each other. But once I start writing, I rarely go back. Mm. With the Peacock Feast, I did have to go back to make sure that dates sometimes aligned and the same with uh, Louisa Bates Bear. I remember my editor saying to me very late along, late in, I hope you have a timeline so that these things work out, you know, that <laughs> I, I don't like to be looking at my notes while I'm writing because new things start to, new things start to happen. But I, I need to feel like I know what my character's childhood was on page one. Now, I may have new scenes that evolve and new ideas that evolve, and none of that may end up in the book, but I want to know a lot about my characters right from the beginning so that I, I'm not a person who gets to the end of the book and then has to go back and replant things um, into the beginning, though I may do that thematically and in terms of residences. Okay. So then your revision process is more one of word editing rather than like moving scenes around or 
trying to figure out what the theme is after you finish the book. Um, well, I, I, I wish I could say that um, this book had 27 drafts and, wow. and the, and I did a lot of moving things around, uh, changing the order of things, adding in new material. As I said, I started off just the first, the early drafts were just in Anna's point of view. I wrote a draft that actually broke the one day frame and jumped forward four years and had other characters in it and then folded them back in. So there's, there's a lot of reworking of things that I do. And also because I often discover my themes really after I have a draft and then I may be rethreading them through. So uh, many, many, many drafts. Yeah. One other point I wanted to touch on, and I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but Anna's profession is as book therapist. Feels like she's more than like a book doula. Yeah, she's kind of a book doula, book therapist. Like she's very attuned to the writing process, almost like more than a book coach. Am I describing her job right? I feel like I want her in my life. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I sort of want her in my life too. Um, Well, she has started a PhD program in English literature and she leaves it after uh, two or three years because she really hates theory. And she says to her friend Fiona, who was also in the same program, you know, I'd rather go before a firing squad than try to explain deconstruction or structuralism. And she just doesn't see herself in that way. And then she goes to work for a screen agent reading books. So she has a lot of background in literature. And then she goes to social work school. And when she graduates, she's seven months pregnant. And she doesn't want to go try to get a job when she's seven months pregnant because she wants to be with with her baby. And her friend Fiona said, who at this point has also abandoned the PhD to um, become a poet and get an MFA in poetry, sends her friend who is struggling with a novel. And Anna says to her, well, I'm not an editor. I don't know how to do this. I can't help your friend. And she says, don't be ridiculous. You know, you've you have almost a PhD in English literature and you've been trained as a social worker, you can absolutely help her. And what she discovers with this friend of Fiona's, Nan, is that Nan is, in a sense, trying to tell and not tell the same story. She wants to tell a story about a young woman who is conflicted about her Jewish background, but she's afraid to tell it because she thinks it's going to offend her, her family. So she's sort of undermining herself. And once Anna points this out to her, then that's, that's liberating to, to Nan. And that becomes her way. She ends up after she goes back to work to decide that this is what she's going to do. And she calls herself a psychological editor. So She's not so much a developmental editor or a line editor, but people come to her when they are blocked and she tries to help them figure out what is holding them back from telling the story that they want to tell. And in the in the novel, she has a client, Bettina, and there's a chapter that has to do with an emergency meeting that they have. And Bettina is very worried that if she tells the truth in her memoir about her family life, that it's going to deeply upset her sister, her half sister. And in the, in the novel, I don't think this is a spoiler, but what happens is that Anna really helps her to understand that this is a kind of boundary confusion. 
that Bettina is having about what belongs to her, that this story belongs to her. And she can tell her sister, look, it might upset you if you read my memoir. That's She can give her fair warning. But it's her sister's choice whether to read it. And it's Bettina's choice whether to write it. And Bettina has gone to um, care and make sure that she's not uh, in any way exposing the family because they have different last names and, and so on. So it's not a confidentiality issue. And so that's what Anna does. <laughs> and I think that that's often the case for for writers that they're anxious about what they want to say. Yeah, I found that section so helpful, both as, yeah, person, writer. I thought it was, that was a really wonderfully rendered section, which, yes, made me want Anna in my life. We touched on sensitivity readers. Did you have sensitivity readers for this novel? Yes, I I did have a lot of readers and I did ask them for sensitivity questions, but neither my agent nor my publisher felt that it was necessary to have a quote, official sensitivity reader. And honestly, I didn't want to be too impinged upon because what I was trying to do was to depict honestly what a parent might go through, a well-meaning, well-intentioned parent, but who can't flip a switch and be perfect in trying to understand, accept, help, be there for their transitioning adult child. As far as the political questions, I just had to stick my neck out there. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I can't remember who the author is, who I respect. I can't remember. I'll have to look it up who it is. But this reticence about sensitivity readers and the risk of that in doing something of great damage to literature. And I think there's there there can be some truth to that. I think certainly we should take care to render things correctly, but over sanitizing, I think is risky too. And so I'm really, my, my own mental jury is still out on this question of how much to sanitize literature to make it, I don't know if the word is safe, but overly sensitive, I think it removes something essential. And so, yeah, I'm really kind of internally struggling with how I feel about all of Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. Maybe we all are. So in our last moments together, I would just love to talk about this issue of agents publishing houses. I know you you switched houses for this book, wondering if you have stayed with the same agent all the way through and some of that businessy stuff of getting books published these days, because you've been in the industry for a long time. The industry is changing a lot. Tell me a little bit about that. If you've If you've stuck with the same agent and how that process may have changed over time in getting your books published. Well, my last three books, my agent was the wonderful Jerry Toma at Writer's House, and they were all published at uh, Forrest Nelson Drew, uh, Sarah Crichton Books. And by the time we came to came time to publish this, Jerry had retired and Sarah was no longer at FSG. So it was really uh, an opportunity for me to sort of have a, a, a new experiment. And I landed with a, a wonderful new agent, also at Writer's House, Stacy Testa. 
and a wonderful new publisher. Um, it's Key Light Books, which is part of Turner Publishing, and they're innovative and interesting, and um, they've done a, a fantastic job. So I've had three publishers, and I've really loved all of them for different reasons. Algonquin for my first book, A Private Sorcery, and Ferostrasa Drew for my next three, and now um, Key Light Books for for this. And I think you can never know where you're going to land. The publishing industry, as everyone knows, is very quixotic. And there's a lot that has to do with taste and how your book matches up with the marketplace at the moment. But mostly I've been trying to keep that out of mind. During yeah. 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 I think I think writers could get, you know, way too concerned with that and you know we're all expected to do an enormous amount of self-promotion which I really hate doing and I think the best way to do that is to just kind of encapsulate it and be done with it another writer friend recently when I was moaning about self-promotion said well maybe you can think about it as like a way of trying to connect with your readers and that I do love I've been on book tour the last month and I've been able to connect with a lot of readers and booksellers and now interviewers like you. And that part is a joy. Yeah, I think readers are really very hungry for that sort of connection. So, yeah, I think shifting your own perception of what it's like, which is not, you know, I'm here hawking something to you. It's more I'm here to connect with you in a meaningful way. I, I really that's very useful. So when your agent retires, do they help you in transitioning to a new agent or are you now just querying <laughs> a new? But no, I was very, very lucky. Jerry absolutely referred me to my new agent at the same house. And uh, she was wonderful, is a wonderful match for me. And so I was very lucky. Yeah, it's nice to be able to have those soft landings because I talk to a lot of writers now who have been in the industry for a long time and how you go about this as a new writer. And, you know, it seems like the rules have largely changed and the way books get marketed have largely changed. So, yeah, it's a sometimes it's nice to be older, I think. <laughs> uh, I think uh, Ada and I both agree. <laughs> Is there last minute advice, wisdom on either the writing process or the publishing process that you can share that has sustained you over time or that you've learned throughout the the decades of publishing? Well, I'm just about with the holidays coming up and things winding down for a bit to turn back to uh, the work in progress, which has been in the back of my mind the last couple of months. And I would say that for me, the most important decision that I've been making right now is what am I going to read next? And that what I want to read has to, in a way, relate to the questions I have in mind about the new book, but also perhaps introduce me to something that strikes me as different that I'm going to learn from. So I would say that reading is just so foundational. Um, I read an interview that Ian Lee, a writer I admire a great deal, reads five hours a day. I don't think I read five hours a day, but I certainly have enough books piled uh, by my bedside table that I, I could read all day long. Um, I think the other thing, advice that 
I would give is that books just take a long time to gestate and to allow oneself that time. And as far as the the publishing process, I think you just have to have a a thick skin and to understand that there's just a lot of it that's you know very very capricious. But I do have some fabulous readers whose opinions I trust, and if if two or three readers all tell me something that's aligned, I take it very seriously. If even just one of my writer friend readers says something and it rings true, I take it very seriously. So I think we have to be willing to overturn our own ideas about what we're doing and uh, let go of things. I've let go of a lot of things in, in, in this book and uh, let go of a whole idea of it going four years forward at 150 pages and they got folded back in to the book in certain ways uh, sort of like stone soup sometimes what you let go of is not what you need but what you've built around it returns to you and and it adds a compression and a richness to your work i love that in terms of the reading do you read within your genre all the way through or is there a time in the writing process when you have to stop getting other voices in your head while you're trying to render your own work you know there was a time when i thought oh i can't read fiction while i'm writing but since i'm almost always writing i think i would die if i could read fiction <laughs> right. so i'm always reading fiction i try not to read anything that's too close to what to my own voice or my own themes because i don't want to feel as though you know somebody else's ideas are are getting confused with my own. So I might read um, something that's quite different. I remember reading Homeland Elegies, a book I really adore, but it's very, very different from Anna Turns while I was reading Anna Turns, uh, The Candy House, similarly. Mm. So, but I listen to nonfiction because I just don't have enough time in the day to to, to do both. And that I listen to while I'm, um, I'm walking. And there the writing, even though there's great deal, wonderful writing and nonfiction, but I'm not studying it in the same way. I'm, I'm more listening for content there. So yeah. it was listening to nonfiction and reading fiction. And I have to read in hard copy. I, I can't stand to read on a screen. Yes. Lisa Gornick. I love our talks. This was fun. Thank you, Marie. I love our talks too. I'm so honored to be back here. That was Lisa Gornick. The book is Anna Turns. It's out and available now. In addition to our Patreon page and the bookshop.org page, you can always visit our websites, barbara'spenonfire.com, mine is mariestone.com, two R's and Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mikejobby.com. He's got great typewriter music up on Spotify. You can find him there on Spotify, Just My Type. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.